I taught uh, the first 36 chapters in Porto Alegre. That's all I've gotten time to uh, work on. I'm working right now on finishing the outline on the rest of Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. It's not got the second most number of chapters, but its chapters are longer than Isaiah's. So Jeremiah is actually the second longest book. If you stick with us through all of this, you'll think so too. But there's a lot of really cool things about Jeremiah. And let me tell you one of the things about Jeremiah that is particularly noteworthy. You'll see it here in the first chapter, but you'll see it a lot over the course of the book. And that is, there is a lot more focus on the person of Jeremiah in this book than there is in most other books of the prophets. For example, you take the prophet Ezekiel. You know how many times Ezekiel's name is found in Ezekiel? Twice. You take the prophet Hosea. You know how many, name, how many times the name Hosea is found in Hosea? Three times. You take the prophet Hosea, uh, Isaiah. You know how, how many times Isaiah's name is found in Isaiah? Sixteen times. You know how many times Jeremiah's name is found in Jeremiah? 131 times. The book of Jeremiah shows you the person of Jeremiah a lot more than the other prophets do. I think the only other book that I would say, you know, really shows you a lot about the person of the prophet would be Jonah. And Jonah's certainly quite different from that. You also see quite a bit about Daniel in Daniel, although Daniel almost spans the line between prophet and historical book. Um, but, but you really do. We're going to see a lot about the heart and character of Jeremiah in the course of this. Um, there's a lot of historical narrative. In fact, in Jeremiah as a whole, you find some things about the history of the people of Israel you won't find anywhere else in the Bible. You know, and so that's really interesting to us. And uh, plus, he's got all sorts of messages from the Lord that are interesting and profitable. So I'm excited about uh, getting to choose to uh, study Jeremiah with you guys. Appreciate Chris and Debbie letting me uh, do this. Uh, let's go ahead and read the introduction, and we will have some things to say about the time period of Jeremiah and uh, the historical context as we do this. So would somebody read chapter 1, verses 1 to 3? The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests, who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Okay. This book begins and ends the same way, sort of. The very first words, the words of Jeremiah. Almost the last words of the book, the last words of chapter 51, thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Chapters 1 to 51 are surrounded by that phrase, the words of Jeremiah. Chapter 52 is an appendix. 
it's it's you know it's kind of an addendum at the end. You'll see that when if you get that far with us or if you read it. So really, the message of Jeremiah is surrounded by this phrase, the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a common name. There are two other Jeremiahs mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, along with the 131 times Jeremiah's own name is mentioned. What do you know about Jeremiah from verse 1, besides what his father's name was? Alright, he was living in the land of Benjamin, however, he was not from the tribe of Benjamin. How was that? What tribe was he from? Levi. Levi. How do you know? Priest. He was a priest, so why was he in the tribe, why was he in the territory of Benjamin? They were spread out everywhere. Yes. What city was he living in in Benjamin? Anathoth, which was a Levitical city. Remember, the Levites had 48 cities, more or less, four per tribe, and Anathoth was one of the Levite cities in Benjamin. So that was about three miles north of Jerusalem. That's where he was from. Um, and we'll see that uh, mentioned later on in the book. So he was from a priestly family. But now, if these are the words of Jeremiah, they're not just the words of Jeremiah. In verse 2, they're the word of what? The Lord. The Lord. Now, that's interesting, because the book of Jeremiah often mentions that Jeremiah's message comes from God. That's kind of giving you his credentials. He's not just a priest, he's a prophet. He speaks as a, uh, a voice for the Lord. So really, this book has two authors. You know, Jeremiah and God. And there are going to be some times in the book where you won't be able to tell whether it was Jeremiah talking or God talking. They just kind of merge together. It's like, I thought that was Jeremiah. No, I think it's God. Well, maybe it's Jeremiah. And it kind of goes back and forth, and you can't really tell where the line is because God is speaking through Jeremiah. It reminds you of Jesus. Was Jesus a man or God? Yes. So were the words of Jeremiah words of Jeremiah or words of God? Yes. In most cases, yes. Jeremiah speaks for the Lord. Jeremiah then was not just a very wise guy, a person who knows a lot about spiritual and political things. He's not some perceptive social commentator. He was a messenger from God. He spoke God's message in this era. Well, what era was this? When did he begin to prophesy? During the reign of which king? Josiah. Josiah. Now, Jeremiah prophesied forever. His ministry lasted more than 40 years as a prophet. So he saw a lot of changes that took place. From the time he began his prophesying until the time he ended. Now, he was called very young. We'll see that in a moment. Um, but he continues for a long time. So, he mentions three kings throughout whose reign he prophesied. There were two others in there, too, but they were really short reigns, and he doesn't even mention them. But Josiah, what do you know about Josiah? What? He was young when he became king. 
I believe he was what, eight years old? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm probably too young to have a whole lot of impact on the government. But as he got to be a teenager, what did he start doing when he was like 16? Anybody know? Yeah, well, he started seeking the Lord, turning to the Lord, and eventually tearing down idols and recommitting the family to the Lord and so forth. Was Josiah from a really godly family? No. Why would you say no? No, that's Joash. No, yes, that's Joash. No, that's... Uh, I'm right, aren't I? Think I'm right? But, yeah, that was Athaliah. That was Joash. Uh, but who was Josiah's father? Anybody memorize the kings of Judah? Great thing to do. His father was Ammon, and his grandpa was Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the wickedest kings in Judah, and Ammon, who only reigned for two years, followed suit. So he had a bad dad and a bad grandpa, and yet as he got to be a teenager, he turned to God and started following the Lord and led the nation to destroy their idols and to turn back to God. Now we'll later see that that was more by you know, governmental decree than it was really changing the hearts of the people. But Josiah did what he could. He was a very good man who really did a lot of encouraging things. But his son, I'm going to describe this. You know, you may have to go back to Kings and Chronicles to remember all this. But let me tell you a little bit about what was happening. See if I can set the historical context then you go back and reread this, or take some notes, or listen on the website to this a couple times, so you can get it in your mind. There was a lot going on in world history during Jeremiah's era. Before Jeremiah, the dominant empire in that whole Middle Eastern region was Assyria. But Assyria started going into decline during Josiah's reign, and Babylon started flexing its muscle. The Babylonians conquered, um, for example, the uh, city of Asher, the city of Nineveh, the city of Haran, and they forced the Assyrian army in retreat back up to the city of Carchemish. This is 609 B.C. Now, Josiah, from everything we can see, was anti-Assyrian. Assyria had always been the enemy. You know, remember what Jonah thought of Nineveh, the Assyrian city? He wanted it destroyed. That was 150 years before. But the Jews didn't like Assyria. So Josiah was anti-Assyrian. Egypt had the opposite opinion. Egypt, which was down below Judah, they didn't. They feared Babylon. They kind of wanted Assyria to stay there, to kind of be a barrier between them and Babylon. So the, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt in 609, Pharaoh Necho, came up through Judah and Israel to try to help the Assyrians stave off the Babylonian advance in Carchemish. 
it looks like Josiah didn't want the Egyptians to help the Assyrians because he didn't like the Assyrians. So he tried to stop Pharaoh Necho in the Megiddo Valley. Necho told him, stop. Don't try to stop me. If you do, you'll be in big trouble. God told me to do this. Josiah wouldn't listen to him. Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah. That was a tragedy. Josiah was only about 39. He had been a very good king. The people mourned his death. Josiah had several sons. Typically, the oldest son would become king. But the people chose Josiah's second son to become king. Now, at this point in time, this is a little confusing. But a lot of the times in this time, a king would have a name, but when he became king, king, they gave him a different name, like a throne name. So this second son of Josiah that the people put in as king, his real name was Shalom, but when he became king, they gave him the throne name Jehoahaz. Now, Egypt went on up, and they took Carchemish. Really, the Assyrians are pretty well gone by now. It's more Babylon versus Egypt. But Egypt managed to keep Carchemish and stop the Babylonian advance there, 609. After about three months up there, Pharaoh Necho came back through Judah. I'm assuming Jehoahaz was anti-Egyptian. That's probably why the people put him in. Anti, you know, pro-Babylon, anti-Egyptian. And so, Necho, he didn't want Jehoahaz to be the king. He brought him to Egypt with him, and he appointed his older brother, whose name was Eliakim, but when he became king, it was changed to Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim became king. He was a pro-Egyptian king. <laughs> well, that didn't work too well. <laughs> he was pro-Egyptian for about three years, three or four years. And the Babylonians fought the Egyptians up at Carchemish, and they managed to conquer Carchemish. There was a Babylonian general named Nebuchadnezzar, the son of the king, uh, and he conquered Carchemish and came right on into Judah and basically made Jehoiakim submit to the Babylonians. He took some of the sharpest young men from Judah to go back to Babylon to be trained for his own personal service. You may remember that. Among the young men that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army captain, took were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Nebuchadnezzar's father died about that time. So he went back to Babylon to become king. He reigned for a long time. If I'm not mistaken, he reigned for 43 years. Babylon only lasted about 70 years. So he reigned well over half of the time Babylon was a dominant power. And so Jehoiakim suddenly becomes pro-Babylon. And he starts paying the tribute to Babylon and all that. Well, after three or four years of paying Babylon, Jehoiakim rebelled and reverted back to being pro-Egyptian. For whatever reason, it took Babylon three or four years to uh, figure that out, or maybe to decide they wanted to retaliate. 
Well, about the time Jehoiakim dies, Nebuchadnezzar's army comes back into Judah. And Jehoiakim's son, whose name was Jeconiah, but changed to Jehoiachin, after three months, the Babylonians conquer Jehoiachin and Judah. They take Jehoiachin into Babylonian captivity, and they appoint Jehoiachin's uncle as king. Jehoiachin's uncle was now the third son of Josiah to reign as king. His name was Mataniah, but they changed it to Zedekiah. And so Zedekiah is now the pro-Babylonian, almost not king. You'd almost, the, the technical term in political circles is he was a vassal. He was like a puppet king. Basically, Babylon was controlling the country, and, and Zedekiah was not a lot more than a figurehead. But there was a lot of anti-Babylonian sentiment in Judah, and finally Zedekiah gave in and turned to Egypt and rebelled against Babylon and quit paying tribute. And eventually, the Babylonian army comes and surrounds Jerusalem and besieges it. Jeremiah had a big role in all that. Zedekiah was a man like Pilate. He was wishy-washy. He kept calling for Jeremiah and asking, Jeremiah, what does the Lord want me to do? Jeremiah would always say, surrender to the Babylonians. That'll be the best thing for you. But Zedekiah wouldn't do it. And so finally, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, like, destroyed them. And uh, they, they left just a handful of poor people to take care of the land and the crops. And they took the rest of them to, to Babylon. They'd also taken a group to Babylon with Jehoiachin in 597. That included Ezekiel. So really, there's three eras of taking captive people from Judah. The first time Nebuchadnezzar came in in 605 when he took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The second time in 597 when he took Jehoiachin and Ezekiel. And now this third time in 586 when he takes everybody. So that means after Josiah, Jehoahaz, his son, reigned three months and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, reigns for 11 years and dies. Then Jehoiachin, Josiah's grandson, reigns for three months and goes to Babylon. And then Zedekiah, Josiah's third son to be king, reigns for 11 years and is taken to Babylonian captivity. So we've got after Josiah, three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. That'll kind of help you get that in mind. When they, took, when they wiped out Jerusalem, they took Zedekiah into Babylonian captivity. Only they did it about as cruelly as you could do it. They captured him. They killed a lot of his like uh, uh, officials, his cabinet members in front of him. They killed his sons in front of him. And then they gouged his eyes out to where the last thing he ever saw was his sons being killed by the Babylonians, and then they took him into Babylonian captivity. The, those poor people who were left in Judah 
Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah to be their governor. Gedaliah was a good man from a good family. Jeremiah stayed in Judah with them. Gedaliah looks like he would have made a great governor. Except Ishmael, one of the army, ex-army officers, assassinated him. And Johanan ends up taking the rest of the handful of Jews who were still there and flees to Egypt. And that's the last place we see Jeremiah, is with the Jews in Egypt. Alright, that's just a brief historical summary. That may have been more confusing than helpful, but at least you've heard that. We will re-mention different angles of that when we come to different historical moments where we need to. If you will read the last chapters of 2 Kings, the last chapters of 2 Chronicles, and listen to this on the website. It may help you get that in your mind more. Caleb? Uh, is this Nebuchadnezzar one or two? There's only one. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's only one Nebuchadnezzar. Other comments or questions? Uh, you yes. said this was, the book of Jeremiah was written around in a 40-year period. Can he prophesied during more than 40 years, yes. Okay, keep are you able to point out the years that this was written? Yeah, I don't know when it was actually like written and compiled as a book. But as far as uh, Jeremiah's prophesying, here in verse 2, it starts in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. So that's about 626. And it goes through the, the time Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, which was 586. And for some time after that, until the Jews ended up down in Egypt. I don't really, nobody really is sure exactly how long it was. How long it was before Gedaliah was assassinated and Johanan takes the rest of them to Egypt. So his, he actually could have lasted a few more years for that. But at least from 626 to 586, at least those 40 years, Jeremiah was prophesying. And in the book, not so much in the first half, but more in the last half, there's lots of times that it will say, this was in such and such a year, this was in such and such a year. It's not in chronological order. So don't expect Jeremiah to be in chronological order. It's not. It's more in thematic order. Does that answer your question, John? Yeah. Okay. Other questions or comments? What would you say the major theme of the book is? Like, just as a reading. The word of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, the problem is, there is so much in Jeremiah. It's the word of the Lord for the people of that day. So a good part of it is they're exposing their sin and threatening the punishment. But some of it is, later on in the book, the great blessings that will come after the punishment. Kind of like Isaiah in that. Lots of sin and punishment, but some looking forward to the blessings that come later. A lot of historical stuff, too. Way more than in most of the other prophets. You've got a lot of just historical narrative. Especially, I would say you've got a lot of historical narrative, especially from chapter 26 to 45. That whole section, especially if you could take out 30 to 33, 26 to 29 and 34 to 45 is almost all historical narrative. That's a lot more than you get in most of the other prophets. Stephen, when you said you said you know there's more history in this book, when you say there's also more history than I guess you know like Exodus compared to this book, or yeah, I mean you've got some books that are all historical narrative. 
Jeremiah is a prophet, but he's a prophet that for a prophetic book has a lot of historical narrative. But like Genesis to, you know, 2 Kings, really Genesis to 2 Chronicles, that's pretty much all, really Genesis to Esther, <laughs> is all historical narrative. So, yeah, this is not primarily a historical book, but for a prophet, there's a lot of history in it. Cameron? You said the blessings to come, would that primarily be the returning to Jerusalem or Jesus Primarily Jesus coming, as it almost always is in my judgment of the prophets. I think when the prophets look to the future, they have a little bit to say about the return from captivity, but almost always the greater message is the return to God through Jesus. Anything else? Sorry to go into all of that, but, uh, you know, Sometimes that needs to be said. It seems to me to introduce Jeremiah. So we just said it. Um, then notice, in verse 2 then, the word of the Lord came to him in the days of Josiah, the 13th year of his reign, and in the days of Jehoiakim, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, which is when he went into captivity, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, isn't that interesting? You know when you start the book of Jeremiah how it's going to end. <laughs> we know Jerusalem will go into exile. There's kind of a dark cloud that overshadows the book from the very beginning. The captivity of Jerusalem is almost the defining moment of the book. Now, I think it's interesting. He doesn't say until the exile of Judah because the focus is so much on Jerusalem. I mean, Judah went into captivity, granted, but the thing that's more significant is Jerusalem, the city that bore the name of God, the city where God's glory dwelt, now is brought to shame and destroyed. That is such a big deal. It wouldn't be such a big deal if it was a handful of cities in Judah that were destroyed, but when God's own city on the earth, Jerusalem goes into captivity. That is a huge deal. I mean, think about Jerusalem's history. When did Jerusalem really become an Israelite city? In whose time period? David's. David's. David conquered Jerusalem. Who had held Jerusalem before David? What people? Nope. Wasn't well, it the Jebusites? Very good, Logan. The Jebusites. And David conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital. Both his political capital and his religious capital. Now, do you remember what David did that made Jerusalem a especially important city religiously? There was one thing he did that made Jerusalem kind of the focus religiously. Really a second thing, but he didn't do so much the second thing. What was the main thing he did? The temple was built there. Yes, but that's what he prepared for. That was really done by Solomon. Though David got the materials together, and he also organized the worship that would happen in the temple, but the temple was really built by Solomon. What was the one thing David did? Brought in the ark. Brought in the ark. And so Jerusalem, from the time of David and Solomon on, became the city where God chose his name to dwell. Deuteronomy 12. God told Moses that when they went into the land, he would pick a city where his name would dwell. It took a while. <laughs> but that city was Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem becomes the city of God's presence, the city that bore God's name. Jerusalem destroyed. It's just, it's hard to emphasize enough what a significant event that was in Bible history. So, Jeremiah prophesies from the days of Josiah until the exile of Jerusalem. Comments or questions on the introduction, first three verses? Hopefully it won't take us this long for every three-verse section. But uh, All right, would somebody read verses 4 to 10? The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nation. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send to you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. So, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah is a man with a message. God's message. And the word said to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So whose idea was it for Jeremiah to become a prophet? God's. God's, absolutely. This was not some career option that Jeremiah, you know, studied for and decided to embark on. This was something God chose. When did God choose it for Jeremiah? <coughs> before he was born. Really, even before. Yeah, before he was conceived. <laughs> I mean, this goes way back in the purposes and plan of God for Jeremiah. It reminds me a lot of Galatians chapter 1. In verse 15, when Paul said, but when God had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Just as Paul went way back before he was born, so also with Jeremiah. This was not a sudden decision even on God's part. It had long been planned. This really stresses the fact that God's in charge. Now, did Jeremiah have to do this because God had chosen him? Or could Jeremiah have chosen not to? It depends on who you ask. In, in a sense, well, I mean, I guess he could have refused the Lord, but it wouldn't have done him much good. He could have. Are there people who refuse the Lord today? There are. You know, God sometimes, uh, you know, God calls people that do not respond to it. So, you know, Jeremiah is not like being forced into this like he couldn't have rebelled. In fact, Jeremiah does it almost in my He overcomes it. But, uh, but, so, but God's purpose for Jeremiah is that he be a prophet to the nations. Um, not just to Israel or not just to Judah, but God's really setting Jeremiah up as kind of a worldwide prophet. He's got a universal mission. This is a huge 
uh, responsibility, a huge task for him. I might suggest, though I wouldn't press this, this verse might be semi-relevant in the abortion debate. You know, clearly God has some connection with even the unborn child, and, and he sees him as a, as a person, not as just an extension of the mother's body or whatever. But what is Jeremiah's immediate reaction to this? Can't do it. I'm not adequate. You know, in a way, I think any sensible person would have probably responded the same way if they heard this. It certainly is the way a lot of other prophets of God and servants of God have responded. Can you think of some other people God chose? Moses. Moses. What did Moses do when God when he saw you know, heard God at the burning bush? Complained. Not even complained or even more. Made excuses. Made excuses. Yeah, he's like, I'm not like a good public speaker. Yes, I can't do it. You know, how will I do this? What about that? Etc. Can you think of others who responded in a similar way when they were called by God? Paul. Paul? No, I don't know. I mean, Paul just said, what must I do, Lord? Jonah. Jonah fled. Jonah fled, though, for a different reason. He didn't want to do it. Uh, Gideon. Gideon, yes, definitely. Gideon's like, hey, I'm the, from the least tribe, from the least family, the least person. You know, who am I? You know, how can I do this? Um, Isaiah, remember what he said? I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm among a people of unclean lips. You know, he, he felt just overwhelmed by his sinfulness. And, uh, you know, Ezekiel just fell to the ground. Uh, and so forth and so on. I think if, if, if you had God speak to you and say, here's what I want you to do. What if God came to you today and said, I'm appointing you an evangelist to the world. Would you suddenly start thinking, what about him? What about him? What about him? Not me. I mean, think about all of the nobles and the priests and the elders and the prophets. Suddenly, everybody seems more gifted and more capable than Jeremiah is. But what Jeremiah says is two things. What were Jeremiah's two reasons why he wasn't qualified and couldn't do it? Yeah, I don't, have to, I don't know how to speak, and I'm a youth. Now, why would he say I don't know how to speak? I mean, like, if I said, I'm appointing you the mechanic for my cars, you might say that's just an overwhelming job, which it is, but... Uh, <laughs> But would you say, well, I can't speak? Well, probably not. If I said I'm appointing you as a mechanic for my cars, what might you say? I don't know how to repair them. I don't know how to repair them. You know, I don't have any wrenches. I don't know. But why would he say I don't know how to speak? Because speaking is scary, no matter what you're talking about. Yes, and what's the role God's calling him for? To speak. To speak a prophet. You know, that's what you do if you're a prophet. You don't work on people's cars, you speak. And speaking is overwhelming. You feel inadequate for that. He knows the Word of God is so important. And he's got to speak it. That seems overwhelming. He said, because I'm a youth. We don't know how old Jeremiah was. However, what I have read indicates the term that's used here probably indicates 
he was not more than 20. He was probably like a teenager. So he kind of looks for at least a delay on the, on the grounds of his age. Can you imagine, you know, as a teenager, being told that, he, Jeremiah, I am reporting you as a prophet to the nations. And you're like, no, not me. You know, you think about, we are historically overall in this crossfire between the great empire in the east, great empires in the east, and the great empire on the Nile, and they're fighting back and forth across Judah, and God sends this young conflicted prophet to guide Judah and the nations through these troubled times. No wonder Jeremiah felt inadequate. Comments? God's answer was, first of all, <laughs> that's always God's answer, isn't it? Uh, why not make the excuses? Why not say, I am too young? What's God's answer to that? To provide deliverance Even before that. He will be with him wherever Even be, yeah. Even, he says, but everywhere I send you, you shall go. He's saying, okay, Jeremiah, but you are not the one in control. I will be responsible for your itinerary. You know, God wouldn't send him if he wasn't equipping him. And so, and, and you know, really, when it's all said and done, God would prefer to send the person who feels inadequate because that person is not so likely to think they know better and they can decide on their own what to do. So he just says, I'm controlling the agenda. I'll, you just go where I send you. And as far as not knowing how to speak, what does God say? I'll command you to speak. Yeah, I'm going to give you the words. What I tell you, that's what you'll speak. That's a perfect rebuttal. <laughs> You have no choice, Jeremiah, either as to the message of the recipients. You just go where I send you and say what I put in your mouth. Could Jeremiah do that? Yeah. You don't really have to be smart. You don't have to really be a good talker. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be anything. Just do what I tell you. That's all there is to this. You know, easy job. <laughs> well, not so easy a job, maybe, because there are real consequences to this. But as far as knowing what to do and where to go, God takes care of that. But then he says something else. You know, don't you love God? You know, God doesn't just answer what Jeremiah said. God also answers what Jeremiah did not say. Sometimes when you offer excuses, the real reason is not what you say. I think that was true in Jeremiah's case. I don't think the real reason was that you know, he felt like uh, he didn't know how to speak or was too young. The real reason is mentioned by the Lord's rebuttal in verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. I think that's the problem. I think he's afraid. I think that's what he's really worried about. And he says, for I am with you to deliver you. I'll take care of you. You know, you can overcome, you know, this fear because God will be with you doesn't matter about you. doesn't matter how capable you are, what qualifications you have. I'll be with you. So God answers what Jeremiah says and what he didn't say, but he's not going to take any excuses. 
This is his mission for Jeremiah. Comments or questions through verse 8? Well, what does God do for Jeremiah in verse 9? And does what? Puts his words in his mouth. Isn't that cool? You know, God just, you know, put the words right into Jeremiah's mouth. So whatever he says is going to be what God put in there. That's, that's good. Isn't that the way we need to be? If we were more like that, it would be so much better. How many times do we try to talk on what we think, what we feel? I, I, I read a book recently that was really uh, helpful in just talking about this idea. And, and, and maybe just mentioning this would be useful. This book, the idea of the book, kind of the sub-idea, was that God's word is adequate for all of our problems. And the, what the book was, was written every chapter by a different author. Someone who had applied God's word to the situation of some person, like, you know, they were going through some emotional or psychological problems, and the person was trying to help them just by using God's word to tell them how to handle that and what to do. And the point that was made in the book is, instead of saying, you know, my education tells me you need to do this, or I just think it would work well to do that, so much better to say, here's what the Word of God says. Here are Bible principles that would apply. I think in my own life, I've done too much of trying to say, here's what I think about this. Here's what it sounds like to me. Instead of saying, the Word of God says this, it would be much better for us to constantly be thinking, what does God's Word say? That's all I'm going to teach. So, he's going to have God's words in his mouth. He just speaks them. Thoughts about that? And then in verse 10, See, I've appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. God is in charge internationally and God can delegate to Jeremiah an international responsibility to speak the words of God his mission is to, is to pluck up break down destroy overthrow build and plant now what do you see in that mission what comes first Yeah, and the first four terms refer to what? Destruction. Destruction before the last two terms, which refer to what? Construction. Yes. Why destruction before construction? Sometimes the reform you have to break off. Exactly. That kind of stinks sometimes, but a lot of times you've got to tear out the old before you can plant the new, right? You know, so first of all, a lot of what Jeremiah's got to say is negative so that they can change, so that he can speak words of reconstruction. You might even notice the terms here. If you look at those six terms, pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, build, and plant. If the negative is pluck up, what's the positive? 
plant. And those words you would use mostly in what area of life? Farming. Yeah, these are farming terms. All right, the word that applies positively to break down is what? What's the opposite of breaking down? Build. Build. And those are not agricultural terms. Those are more what kind of terms? Construction terms. And then the two words in the middle, destroy and overthrow, I would call those more what kind of terms? Yeah, military. So you've got agricultural terms, construction terms, military terms. Four, you have to tear it up. And two, you have to build it back. That's God's message to the nations. That's what you're going to see Jeremiah doing. More plucking up and destroying, but after a while, the planting and the building up as well. All right, comments or questions on those first ten verses of Jeremiah? Eleven and twelve. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. God's approach is sometimes interactive. So here he shows Jeremiah something, and God loves the question-answer approach. You know, he kind of leads people. What do you see, Jeremiah? What did Jeremiah see? Yeah, like an almond tree branch. Now, I don't know how much you know about almond trees, but the word in Hebrew for an almond tree is shaked. And the word for watching or being awake is shoked. Apparently, the reason why the almond tree was named that is because the almond blossom is like the first one in the spring. And so it was called like the watchful tree or the awake tree because its bosses wake up first from the winter sleep. It's kind of the watchful one that signals the coming of the summer. So what he says that means to Jeremiah is God is awake and watching over his word to perform it. In other words, God will really do what he says. God's not going to fall asleep and forget to accomplish what he says he will do. Now, if that's true, if God's always awake and making sure his word is fulfilled, then how should Jeremiah speak the word? What'd you say? With observation, closely watching. Okay, yes. Truthfully. Truthfully, yes. I'm thinking about this with a lot of conviction. You know, it's not like he says, well, you know, God says this. Like the word of the Lord is this. This is the way it is. You know, when God says something, is it possible it might happen? <laughs> when God says it, that's money in the bank. So often we can be too tentative. Well, you know, it might not be a good idea 
to live together before marriage because, you know, I mean, you never know. God might not like that too well. Uh, can we say something a little stronger about that? You know, I mean, God has said, here's what's going to happen. You know, we so often want to, like, water down and make it more mild. But if God always performs his word, then we don't really have the right to speak his word kind of sheepishly. You know, we ought to speak his word with conviction. Here's what it says. God always fulfills his word. The almond tree was apparently very widespread in Judah. It was all over the place. And so, every time Jeremiah sees an almond tree, it should remind him, God is always awake to fulfilling his word. Comments and questions? helpful for us to find some things in our own life that we're always around that remind us of God. It and would. To just focus those things where every time we see it, we can get something about God and how awesome it is. Good point. You know, observant people often see God and lessons about God in a lot of things. You know, I've recently studied James, and I've noticed that about James. He finds God in everything. It's crazy. I mean, just everything he sees, he sees a spiritual lesson in it. I think he's probably looking for that. It would help if we were looking for those things. Other thoughts? All right, 13 to 16. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a blowing pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north to declare the Lord. And they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all, of its, against all of its walls all around, and against the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. So, what did Jeremiah see next? And what was happening with the boiling pot? It was facing north. It's facing away from the north. The idea is this boiling pot is tipped over from the north. Now, if, if you tip it over from the north, the scalding contents are going to flow out toward the south. That's what Jeremiah is seeing. Now, what does it mean? Yeah! From the north, all these terrible things are going to come out, uh, come up on the land. And uh, this invader is going to come, and they're going to set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Now, if, you set, if you're the enemy invader, and you set your throne at the gate of the cities, what happened at the gate of the cities? What, was, what went on at the gates of the city? 
business, and even like city government. If the enemy sets up his throne at the gate of your city, he's in charge of your city. That's the point. The enemy's going to take over the cities. Do you notice what word is most often used in verses 15 and 16? Behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdom of the north to close the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness. So, all the Judah cities are going to be dominated by the enemy because of what? Why is God going to destroy all the cities of Judah with this army coming out of the north? They turn away from him and turn toward wickedness, wickedness and specifically idolatry. They trusted in the idols and not in the Lord. Therefore, God was going to tip the scalding pot over. And this, these contents, kind of, kind of like molten lava, coming down and destroying the nation. This army from the north was going to take over the country. So those are the two visions Jeremiah gets. He sees the almond branch and he sees the pot tipped over. And those things mean God will fulfill his word and there's going to be a devastating destruction coming out of the north. Jeremiah is going to talk a lot about this devastating destruction out of the north. Alright, anything you want to say or ask about through 16? Both, uh, these two combined together. God is watching and he's preparing to bring us down. Like I imagine this boiling pot has to get boiling first. So it's been over there heating in the north uh, while God's over there watching them do their evil. So when we're, we think we're getting away with something, we're not getting away with it. God's just preparing the boiling water to pour on us. Good point. That's an excellent observation. God already has this in the works. Tells that to Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, why aren't you doing anything, God? God said, I'm doing something you don't even recognize. I'm preparing the Chaldeans to come and destroy uh, Judah. And so God often does prepare when we don't even realize he's doing that. Other thoughts? All right, let's take a break for a few minutes, and then we'll come back to 117.